Chapter One of Forest Days A Romance of Old Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Forest Days A Romance of Old Times by G. P. R. James. Chapter One Merry England, oh, Merry England. What a difference has there always been between thee and every other land! What a cheerfulness there seems to hang about thy very name! What yeoman-like hilarity is there in all the thoughts of the past! What a spirit of sylvan cheer and rustic hardihood in all the tales of thy old times! When England was altogether an agricultural land, when a rude plough produced an abundant harvest, and a thin but hardy and generous peasantry devoted themselves totally to the cultivation of the earth, when wide forests waved their green boughs over many of the richest manufacturing districts of Great Britain, and the lair of the fawn and the burrow of the coney were found. Where now appear the fabric and the mill, there stood, in a small town, or rather, I should call it, village, some fourteen miles from Pontefract, a neat little inn, well known to all the wayfarers on the road as a comfortable resting-place, where they could dine on their journey to or from the larger city. The house was constructed of wood, and was but of two stories, and let it not be supposed on that account that it was devoid of ornament, for manifold were the quaint carvings and rude pieces of sculpture with which it was decorated and not small had been the pains which had been bestowed upon mouldings and cornices and lintels and doorposts by the hand of more than one laborious artisan. Indeed, altogether, it was a very elaborate piece of work, and had probably been originally built for other purposes than that which it now served, for many were the changes which had taken place in that part of the country, as well as over the rest of England, between the days I speak of, and those of a century before. Anyone who examined the house closely would have seen that it must have been constructed before the year 1180, for there was very strong proof in the forms of the windows, and the cutting across of several of the beams which traversed the front, that at the period of its erection the use of glazed casements in private houses was not known. At the time I speak of, however, glass had become plentiful in England, and though cottages were seldom ornamented with anything like a lattice, yet no house with the rank and dignity of an inn, where travellers might stop in rainy and boisterous weather, was now without windows, formed of manifold small lozenge-shaped pieces of glass, like those still frequently employed in churches, only of a smaller size. The inn was a gay-looking, cheerful place, either in fine weather or in foul, for as there are some men who, clothe them as you will, have a distinguished and graceful air, so there are some dwellings which look sunshiny and bright, let the aspect of the sky be what it will. The upper story of the house projected beyond the lower, and formed of itself a sort of portico, giving a shelter to two long benches placed beneath it, either from the heat of the summer sun, or the rain of the spring and autumn and it need not be said that these benches formed the favourite resting-place of sundry old men on bright summer evenings, and that many a time in fine weather a table will be put out upon the green before the house, the bench offering seats on one side, 
while settles and stools gave accommodation on the other to many a merry party round the good roast beef and humming ale. Before the door of the inn spread out one of those pleasant open pieces of ground which generally found room for themselves in every country village in England, on which the sports of the place were held, to which the jockey brought his horse for sale, and tried his paces up and down, on which many a wrestler took a fall, and cudgel player got a broken head. There, too, in their season, were the merry maypole and the dance, the tabor and the pipe. There was many a maiden wooed and won, and there passed along all the three processions of life, the infant to the font, the bride to the altar, the corpse to the grave. Various were the memories attached to that village green in the hearts of all the neighbourhood. Various were the associations which it called up in every bosom, and various were the romances, probably much better worth listening to, than this that we are going to tell, which that village green could have related. It had all the things pertaining to its character and profession. It had a dry, clear, sandy horse-road running at one side, it had two footpaths crossing each other in the middle. It had a tall clump of elms on the south side, with a well, and an iron ladle underneath. It had a pond which was kept clear by a spring at the bottom, welling constantly over at the side next the road, and forming a little rivulet full of pricklebacks, flowing on towards a small river at some distance. It had its row of trees on the side next to the church, with the priest's house at the corner, the surface was irregular, just sufficiently so to let some of the young people, in any of their merry meetings, get out of sight of their elders for a minute or two, and the whole was covered with that short, dry, green turf, which is only to be found upon a healthy, sandy soil. In short, dear reader, it was as perfect a village green as ever was seen, and I should like very much, if such a thing were possible, to transport you and me to the bench before the inn door on some fine afternoon in the end of the month of June, and there, with a white jug of clear Nottingham ale before us, while the sun sunk down behind the forest, and the sky began to glow with its slant rays, to tell you the tale which is about to follow, marking on your face the signs of interest which you would doubtless show, the hope the fear, the expectation, perhaps the smile of surprise, perhaps the glistening drop of sympathy, suffering you to interrupt and ask a question here and there, but not too often, for giving a moment's impatience when the tale was dull, and thanking you in the end for your friendship towards the good and noble who lived and died more than five centuries ago. In truth, reader, you know not what a pleasure there is when the mind is clear from care of sorrow, the heart well attuned, the object a good one, and the tale interesting. You know not what a pleasure there is to sit down and tell a long story to those who are worthy of hearing one. And now, having made a somewhat wide excursion and finding it difficult to get back again to the tale by an easy and gradual process, I will even in this place close the first chapter, which, by your leave, shall serve for the preface and introduction both. End of chapter 1